Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. My name is AJ Haddenberg. I am here with the illustrious, the world-renowned Grab Donaldson. Say hi, Grab. No. <laughs> and beside Grab is Thomas Magby. Thomas Magby, he's married, he's famous, he is the dean of student life. Say hi, Thomas. I'm just so sad. This is how we're starting out. <laughs> this is, uh... We are classical teachers with classical looks and classical <laughs> books, everybody. It's like so... Kiss 99 FM. It's <laughs> exactly like... right, man. Are we trying to get syndicated? Is that what's happening right now? <laughs> so everyone, you know, perk up your ears for a day full of learning, discussion, and fun. And, uh, you know, have fun on your commutes this morning. I hear it's a, it's a breezy one or a sunny one or wherever you're listening from. If you're in Alaska, it's an icy one, folks. So be careful out there and, uh, you know. Try not to pay too much attention to your hair and uh, <laughs> buckle up for knowledge. It's coming at you. Please, you have to keep oh, that voice s- up for the entire episode. And right? now I apologize. No, no, it was perfect. Uh, Sorry for so that. good. Or... Now, I feel like that, uh, Graham, is on you and me because we, we did our puns it's a true. couple times ago. Mm-hmm. And so we brought this upon ourselves. AJ, this is like the, the, the bowls of AJ's wrath have filled up and <laughs> overflowed. <laughs> all, of his, all of his uh, dissatisfactions with our, our poor intros have just <laughs> redounded upon our rebellious heads. This is my rebellion against the pun intros, especially because the audience doesn't get them if they haven't already listened to the episode. It's, the a, it, it's, a, it's an inside yeah. joke, yeah. and our audience is not inside. But and it's, so, like, it's, it's for the three of us, so we can giggle about it. Isn't <clears> that, is that not enough? And like with all good inside jokes... Increases their desire to be inside. Mm, wow! And so they want to listen to get. I'm the joke. not buying it. <laughs> uh, write in and tell us. Yeah, it increases <laughs> their increases their desire in a bad way. Yeah. right. <laughs> they listen Fair. to the puns. And I have like, a nope. lot. Of, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, um, so today uh, I'll be talking. Like, we will. We will talk about. It won't just be me. We, um, Talking about education broadly. Um, focus most specifically on university or higher education. Um, so the. You sniffing around? You okay? Yeah, I'm oh. just. I'm trying not to sniff directly in the microphone. Well, so I like to cough directly into the microphone. So maybe I'm trying to spare the audience. It is my a sniffy season sniffy in Austin. It is. With all and the you're feeling kind of great right now. The yeah. and the the trees have a conspiracy against humanity. Speaking of conspiracy, how about you? It's like that movie. Did you guys ever watch the movie The Happening? I did not. No. Was that the Mark it's Wahlberg? Uh, M Night Shyamalan. M Night Shyamalan. Mike, and Everyone starts to die and they don't know why. And then it's vaguely blamed on trees getting back at us for global warming. That's really dumb. And then eventually they just stop it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They've killed enough people and... And then they're done. Okay. That's the movie. That sounds like a good movie. It doesn't. <laughs> it's not It's not a good movie. I bet Shaman has some hits or misses. You know? Didn't he have one hit and then a bunch of misses? Okay. The well, sense? recently he's Sixth making sense. them again yeah. and they are, he's not advertising that it's his Him. name. Oh. And they've, I, I hear that his most recent ones have been pretty good. Like Signs Split was, good. was supposed oh, to be oh, really Signs good. Was good. What's Signs the most, was kind of what's fun. What's recent stuff? Split. Split. I don't know. It's anything. like... Kidnapper that has multiple personalities. I heard it was maybe awesome. folded into the Unbreakable universe mm-hmm. like with uh, Bruce Willis, who's hmm. super strong, and yeah. then uh, uh, Samuel Jackson, who's like Mr. Glass. Anyway. It, yeah, those movies were... You know, I think it gets a bad rap. There, yeah. there are some big misses, though. The Village was... <laughs> I liked the village. I, have never I seen thought it. it was a, I, the ending. Even though I saw it coming, um, I liked it. I thought it was effective. So anyway, the, one of the requirements of a, of a surprise ending is that the surprise is reached fairly, and it was not reached fairly because, you know, he if he didn't 
say what year it was at the beginning of the film, and then the big reveal was that it was modern day. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it. I was going to say, isn't this a spoiler? It is definitely a spoiler. It's okay. But she climbs over a fence, and she's in, like, modern England or whatever. What movie is this? What's the name? The Village. The Village. But the thing is, is at the beginning, he has one of those video things that says, like, 1618 or something. Mm. So he tells you it's a different time. He straight up lies to the audience, if Um, I'm remembering right. I don't remember that. And then later, it shows the modern thing. If I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, talk. this is uh, neither here. It does not. This conversation does not matter. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. So hot take from classical stuff on a 14 year old movie. Yeah. Good, good on us. Hey, so today we're going to talk about education um, and how movies have taken over. Nope, that's not true. Hey, so a few episodes ago, Graham referenced um, an I thought he was referencing an article. Turns out he was referencing a book. Um, and so I read the article, not the book, because it's shorter. By a guy named uh, William Dershowitz. Uh, it's called The Neoliberal Arts. Um, you can find it online on uh, Harper's uh, subtitle, How College Sold Its Soul to the Market. So you can probably tell what direction this is going in. Um, so that this article will be kind of a launching place, and then we'll just take the conversation where it goes, because um, I find that more entertaining. So uh, his I'm just going to, at the beginning of this article, he has these two different mission statements from um, the same institution. Same institution, two mission statements separated by about 90 years. I'm going to read mm, these two mission statements to you. Are you going to tell us the institution? Uh, he does not say it. Oh. So all he says is it's we a show. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Jiffy Lube. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so he says it's an elite liberal arts college, but then does not name it after that. How about um, Okay. And then he has some fun parts later on where he talks about interviews with elite liberal arts, um, uh, like, presidents and they're very funny we'll get to that later hopefully anyway so here are the two sentences and i would just like your hot take on what um what's different about them so the first mission statement nothing is more classical than hot takes (laughs) the paramount obligation of a college is to develop in its students the ability to think clearly and independently and the ability to live confidently courageously and hopefully the first one. I'm gonna that, read. that is the older one? That's the older one. Okay. Let me read it again. The paramount obligation of a college is to develop in its students the ability to think clearly and independently and the ability to live confidently, courageously, and hopefully. That's the first one. The second one. Leadership, service, integrity, creativity. Those are the two. What, what's, what, what's your initial reaction? What, what, do you, what do you say to that? Um, the second one doesn't have a thesis like the second one doesn't have a a stand that it's taking right it's just either either you're taking it or the second one is assuming that you are knowing what they're talking about and the first one has a statement as to a stake in the ground as to what they think the school should be the second one is more an assumption you're mm-hmm. sort of assuming or it's vague enough that you can fill it in with whatever you want the the second one is a sentence i would force my students to rewrite because <laughs> i'm not, not kidding it's, just, it's, just it's not even for, a sentence right it's, it's vague it doesn't say anything declarations and you could turn you could yeah it's not even a declaration yeah, it is a, a it is a noun mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i could do the same thing and as an audience you could fill it in with whatever i could say pants computers <laughs> eyeglasses yeah, yeah. integrity and you would have no idea. I, I could be a department store talking about things in my department. I could be naming things that I like. Yep. I could be doing whatever. Or I could go the other way and be like, cocaine, heroin, marijuana, South America. <laughs> and what exactly Ooh. am I saying? Am I yeah. saying that these things are a problem there? That they come from there? That these are fun things? We have no idea. And it is just nonspecific. And yep. the burden of the writer is specificity. Yeah, I like that. Um, 
you're making all the same points he is that this first one is like an actual sentence and you can see a single human saying that sentence mm-hmm. and it would make sense for them to make to say that sentence and in fact it is attributed to the founder of that university so that's great the second one comes from this um it's a bureaucracy it's this group of people who get together and say you know what is it that we value as an institution and they come out with these four words and they're uh, plastered all over the campus but um nothing is actually you know it's not talked about it, it no one knows where it comes from it just suddenly appears one day um so uh, Dershowitz does not like this. So he, the title of this article, again, The Neoliberal Arts. So he's contrasting liberal arts with neoliberal arts. So uh, this is not quiz show. I now regret having ever done quiz show. I'm so sorry. What are liberal arts? When we say that. Oh, wow. It's not a quiz show. But the arts that bring freedom. Oh, <laughs> beat but, you to it. But there's seven of them. Oh, do you want to name them? Will that oh, make you gosh. feel good? Um, you don't have to. If you, let's I mean, see if I can do this. Grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music. That sounds right. I didn't have it pulled up. I think that sounds I right. Think astronomy, it. arithmetic, the geometry. And you said geometry. Said geometry. Yeah, you're good. Awesome. So classical conception of liberal arts, there are those seven. But then why are they called liberal arts? That's what um, AJ was just saying. Um, practice, you said for freedom? Was that the they word? bring freedom. Bring freedom. So uh, what, are, what are these liberal arts in contrast to? What do, if you're not a liberal art, you are a... The practical arts, right? Practical arts is a nice way of phrasing it. Um, my boy... The acquaint- servile arts. Servile arts is the more fun way of yeah. phrasing that. They, uh, it's, it's the drudgery things you do to get uh, money? Servile has such a negative connotation, it but it is the thing that... It's done for the sake of something it else. It is done for the sake of something else. So it, it serves It is being life. used to accomplish... A different thing. Right. It, yeah. You do the servile arts in order that you may practice the liberal arts. Is that more accurate? That's. Sure. I think uh, that's what. Um, that's a fun way of putting it. Aristotle would say. Yeah. We work that we may have yeah. leisure. Yeah. Um, so all that is good. So when uh, uh, Dershowitz is talking about neoliberal arts, can, can you give me an example of a servile art? Um, uh, any kind of craft, any kind of trade. Pottery. Uh, <laughs> pot- we always have to come back to pottery. <laughs> no, pottery yeah, is the chief in demand. So uh, sword making. Sword making. Um, but uh, tent making. But wouldn't you also say engineering mm-hmm. um, or growing bananas? Yep. What about law? Agricultural, is law servile art? Uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a skill that you're learning for the purpose yeah. of um, law, a, and medicine, a career, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you say? I think you would say that. But I, so this yeah. this is my hang up, and we'll get to this later because mm-hmm. I thought I was going to come into this topic and have a real clear cut argument of why all of us should do liberal arts, but I'm not sure I feel that way um, the more I, I went into this. So we'll get there. Uh, track with me. So when, uh, when Dershowitz talk, talks about neoliberal arts, um, he's kind of going, harkening back to um, the servile, servile art concept. Um, he says that neoliberalism um, tells the, t- uh, this is quoting, the worth of the person is the wealth of the person. Neoliberalism tells you that you are valuable exclusively in terms of your activity in the marketplace. In Wordsworth's phrase, you're getting and spending. Were you going to say something there? Mm-mm. Okay, never mind. Um, so I, I think this most clearly comes out when um, I don't know. What do you think the typical reaction is when someone says, "Hey, I'm going to go off to school and study"? Liberal Wait, can arts? you can you rephrase that last set of sentences in normal people English? Um, the value of a thing is the money you get from it. There you go. Okay. Um, phrase, yeah. Um, there are different words for it: Reaganism or Thatcherism. Um, but now I just want to use fancy terms for it: ideology that reduces all values to money values. That's and he got, and he called that neoliberalism. Neoliberalism. So your yeah. worth in society is tied to the quality the, the, of car the sort you can of market buy. value that you can derive from it. Your ultimate wealth. Yeah. 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 Um, and so we all are educators. We all work at this school of Veritas. Would you would you say that the things that we are teaching them are to secure for them uh, a place in the marketplace? 
it's definitely the tension is between the old style of liberal art freeing the soul to be able to be a human being and setting them up for some kind of way to survive in a in the sort of modern marketplace that we have. Um, that's <clears throat> that's a that's a tension, and uh, I would say that. I mean, because I teach writing as a skill, I am trying to arm my students with the ability to bring what is in their head out into the world, mm -hmm. which is the skill of a human being that wants to live effectively and completely. And the servile arts, I would consider a byproduct of the liberal, liberal arts, right? Having, having the we skill to participate in the market is a secondary accidental outcome of the other things I am teaching them. Right, I'm not focused on that, but it is a it is one of the things that happens when you when you practice the liberal arts, at least in my class. I, I don't I'm not sure I could say the same thing about, say, learning chemistry, right? There there's probably a joy to that, but I think it is that is probably more focused on functioning in the marketplace. Yes. It, more, like explicitly it's for functioning in the marketplace. So you do want people to uh, leave we we all work at Veritas. You want people to leave Veritas have some kind of ability to work and make money and have success, right? Like, you wouldn't say that you don't. And there that. is a joy in finding a place and being able to make money on something that you're good at and standing on your own two feet. And I mean, that that is a tremendously satisfying thing in life, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's not the ultimate thing. Um, but I think what the, the problem comes in is that um, being successful in the world comes as a byproduct from doing education well. Living thoroughly. When you, yeah, when you, so, so when you sort of focus on, on the, um, sort of the material things that a human being can have, you focus on those things and you say, well, the soul doesn't matter. The, um, right. uh, their freedom doesn't matter. Um, um, their ability to uh, do English stuff or history stuff doesn't matter as long as we can get the proper outputs. But, there's, um, it's like saying the soil doesn't matter, the water doesn't matter, the sunlight doesn't matter. All that matters is that we can make apples. Right. Well, you can't get apples from a tree if you don't have, like, the tree's nature is that it needs good soil, it needs sunlight, it needs water, it needs all of these things working together, and then it will produce fruit as a byproduct. You can't just say we're going to ignore all the, all the processes and just really focus on the fruit. Yeah. In fact, if we could just have the fruit without the tree, we'd do it. Um, but it's I don't, kind of like an analogy for the modern, yeah, modern education. But I don't think we should, the sur, you know, servile comes with negative connotations, sure, but sure. that doesn't mean that in our pursuit of the liberal arts, we discount entirely the servile, yeah. right? We want someone that can function fully as a human being. And part of that function is vocation. Mm -hmm. You got to have a job. So that's so. Um, Dershowitz later in the article talks about these three purposes of higher education, and this is his proposal for it. And we can talk about history of universities if we want to for whether these are good purposes. But the three potential purposes of a university are commercial, preparing to start a career, cognitive, which is learning stuff or better learning how to think, and the moral, the purpose, um, yeah, or and a moral purpose of training in um, virtue. So those are three things that he proposes as a purpose of university. Wait, three things. So one, one more time. Commercial, commercial, moral, and cog cognitive. Cognitive. And cognitive. Just sort of okay. learning stuff. Learning, like just learning facts, learning things. Yes, learning stuff or better, learning how to think. Mm. So both of those would fall okay. under cognitive. Um, yeah, just hearing, like off the bat, do those three sound like good purposes for a school? I would think the moral, by the time you're in, like if we say, ah, the moral education, that will come at college. 
or that will come at you, the university. In our, in our modern world, that means we're saying that's going to come when you're 18. That doesn't seem to jive well. You would think that moral education and training, that, that college is akin to a finalizing or a finishing school as right. opposed to when life starts, which is how a lot of people sort of think about college. Your life actually begins when you're 18. Everything else you did until then is is pushing paper until you just so you could get into college. Whereas, but I, yeah, but I don't think this list is saying college is the only time for these things. It's just things that should happen in college. Yeah, there. yeah, it's a continuation of the education you should have been doing for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in a sense, so there, yeah, there should have been cognitive development before they get to college. There should moral be moral development. development. Mm-hmm. There should should be commercial development. That might be the open question there. I mean, I think so. We, we give the kids some commercial skills. Some of our extracurriculars are commercial focused, right? We teach them how to work on cars. We mm-hmm. teach them. I've taught a pottery class. I hate to bring it back to pottery. I'm gonna try to throw it in it's every episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's the um, you know we're not we're not eschewing those things. If you're playing in favor classical stuff, only... bingo at home. <laughs> AJ mentioned pottery. <laughs> I've referenced Aquinas. So yeah. Oh man, like we have we yeah. have got to make that spreadsheet that we can send out to people. Have a bingo card. Pun. If you're looking for pun intro, <laughs> oh, you didn't get that square this time, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you got wacky voice. <laughs> Is that gonna be a new one? Oh, wacky um, voice. I've done accents before. There's not. there's usually one of those. It's terrible. Um, so what is Dershowitz? So is I mean Dershowitz sounds like he's kind of grumpy at the state of modern education. That is a nice way of putting it. Or he's, he's despairing that Yale, that he teaches at Yale. Yes. He's despairing that Yale has turned into just a, uh, a rubber stamp for a life of power uh, and that most students are... are they're making cogs. Well, they are, or, or they're, they're um, doing the classes to get the rubber stamp, but they're all hustling on the sidelines to get the, the internships and to get in at the right banks and to get in with the right politicians. Like, I know that... I, it's been a long time since I've read that article, but I know that's what he is he is um, concerned about, that he's he feels like there's some sort of purity of the intellectual life that has been lost. Uh, he talks about a, a speaker who wonders why he finds himself addressing half-empty lecture halls, and I can tell him why, because his students don't much care about the things he's trying to teach them. Um, that was one that stuck with me. Um, so, yeah, so people are... Uh, Dershowitz's argument is that there are pe- many people are going to college for the purpose of getting that um, getting that job, getting that career on the other side, and not for the learning itself. But I guess the reason I, I brought this up as education generally is that I'm not sure that that's unique to the university. I don't think. Um, I don't know. I'm curious what your experience, what you all experience in the classroom with this. Um, the, the, so when I uh, I remember being in math classes um, and. Uh, I'm going to say hearing people say, because I don't want to out myself as the one asking these questions, but like, why does this stuff matter? Right? Some version of that question of, I'm learning something only for the sake of learning it, and it's not actually useful. Why did the liberal arts, or why does... But isn't that, is that a question you all are hearing too? Oh, all the time. Oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, part of it is a maturity thing. Mm-hmm. At When you are five, you don't know why you're doing these things. You just have to go because your parents send you. And that's why I spend the first day in ninth grade talking about the value of education. And sometimes it sticks. And my ninth graders realize the value. Many times it doesn't. And I, I hate to say this, but I think part of the reason we don't value education like we used to is that it's ubiquitous. Everybody has it. Mm -hmm. Give everyone a pocket full of diamonds and diamonds don't mean anything. Right. And because everybody goes to college, everybody goes to high school, everybody has this. It's not something that you value. And you don't have the perspective when you're young to realize the things that you're getting are valuable. And 
So the privatization of education might bring back that. And I'm not advocating that, you know, education should only be available to the wealthy. I'm just... Or to those who desire it. Or to those who desire it. I'm, I'm just pointing out that when, when it is everywhere and it is what you are expected to do when you are young, you don't realize that it is a privilege, right? You receiving intelligent things from intelligent people and learning how to conduct yourself intelligently are things that are incredibly valuable and when you see that everyone has them and that you're forced to receive them, it just reduces the value in your head. And maybe you don't have the perspective when you're young to realize what you're getting. And then only when you're 40 and realize, oh man, I am lacking writing skills. I don't have speaking mm-hmm. skills. I have no idea what history is all about. I'm, I'm disconnected from the world and our, our origins. And I don't know where anything came mm-hmm. from. Only then do you realize the value, but it's too late to go back. I mean, sort of the dirty, not the dirty secret, but one of the the realities of education is that it is offered. So like we offer a classical education at Veritas. Um, Not everybody receives it. And that because it is a willpower on the student. And that's hard sort of reality. um, But um, it is, yeah, these things are sort of offered freely. But I, I even think about this when I went through school up until college, like learning and the love of it and desiring to read and wanting to understand hit me midway through first year of, un- of undergrad mm. university, the University of Toronto. I'm, I think back to high school and I realize, you know, you were offered an education. It was a Canadian public school education, which we can have a conversation as to whether or not how robust it was. But there were teachers who were great. And, um, and these things are offered, but, you know, the 16-year-old Donaldson Hart, I don't think, received it in the yeah, spirit of which it was given. I don't think I realized the value of what I was getting until after college. I just sort of got through. I thought it was something I had to do. I had to do it to get a job. I, I got excited about certain things, and I always, have always loved learning, but I never realized the value of education and what was offered me until far later. And I think part of that is that I didn't pay any price for it, right? I had... Only, only after college did I have to pay my student loans and realize the true cost of what I was getting. Yeah. And our freshmen, they, they don't have any skin in the game. Their parents mm. pay for their education here, but they are not required to pay for it. And I think if the parents at our school, if you're listening parents, this might be a good idea. If you made your kid earn some of the money that went towards their education, they'd have some stake in the game. They would demand more from their teachers, which is kind of scary for me, but they would also demand more from themselves and realize that this this is an expensive education. Mm -hmm. They are really getting something worthwhile. Skin in the game is 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 a great sort of thought. Just incentives for education is a great thing that I don't think schools really think about. Um, I don't think... We keep on advocating for free education, but what that means is that it's valueless to the student. Yeah, um, that that having something be at stake. And the thing is, like, a teenage soul wants to have things at stake. A lot of the despair that comes in those years is you feel like you are, you have on the one hand... Nothing you do matters. Yeah, you have the adult mind, or you're growing into an adult mind, but you don't have any of the adult responsibilities and consequences. You don't get the fruit of your labors. You don't get the, the... you don't get the agony of defeats. Things are kind. Yeah, what, exactly. That feeling like what I doesn't do, what I don't, what I do doesn't matter, or the ultimate sort of teenage thing. Would anybody know if I was gone? Mm. Right, and that's that's the, the soul in despair. So, um, yeah, having some kind of skin in the game is, I think, a really interesting thing. And I think what Dershowitz is talking about is he is 
seeing that, um, if you want to call it like arrested development, great show. If you want to call that arrested development of the of someone becoming an adult moving into the college years, which I think is a definitely a modern phenomenon that we have, um, that it is um, that that is yeah, the kids are not valuing the the education that they're getting. But I do realize that it makes us sound like cranky old people on our porch saying, kids these days, when we were young, we valued our education. I didn't, but we didn't. Okay. Yeah. No, we didn't. But we're like, um, they don't they don't know what they're getting. Everything I give is gold, <laughs> and they don't care. And all of the kids are saying, yeah, but what you're giving is boring and doesn't matter to yeah. modern society. Like Fortnite. But th- so this is what I, okay, so um, you all just kind of talked about, you had these experiences of learning to love education. And so maybe that was what kicked off you valuing um but even the spirit of soul had to be enacted, right? Yes, but okay. Well, let's follow that. Can we teach that? Can, can we, we awaken that? Can we um, mm-hmm. bring that out in a student? We try. How? What? What? What do we do to bring that out in students? I, what I do is I, I show them the old. I mean, I can only speak to this as it relates to English sure. because that's what I experience. I show them old books and then I connect it to their daily life as much as I can, or at least I try. I make. If I can, I make the book sound exciting if I have time to talk about it in that way and we don't have to do other things. And then I try to say, this relates to you in this way. And here are some examples of it affecting the modern world. Here is how it has affected stories in past and here's how it affected art. And I try to show the the repercussions of said book and how it reaches into their daily life if I can and show that there are things to learn. I challenge them on decisions they've made and... One of the important things I try to do is show them the value of being able to defend themselves with language. Mm-hmm. And this requires me to be quick and clever and thoughtful if I can. Mm-hmm. It requires me to be careful with the way I write emails. And it requires me to show and identify the vague ways in which they speak and get themselves into trouble, which means calling them on stuff. Make you know, When they say something vague, I give them a vague answer. Sure. Do you, have a, do you have an answer to that one? I was going to say just that it gets a little bit easier as they get older when they have more sort of life experience. So in the next podcast, we're going to talk about romanticism. But when we talk about romanticism, the kids who have had some kind of like transcendental experience of beauty, when we start talking about this in a um, in a in the poem and we and, and we talk about this, kids who have experienced that engage a lot more in the lesson because we're talking about something that they have experienced in their lives. And so edu- so uh, w- I think we had the experience of, oh, this education matters when we were older and it meant something. We had some sort of skin in the game or there was a, a teacher or somebody who made this, gave what we were learning cu- currency in our lives. Yeah. And life. Yeah. Vivid. And we life. Vivid. Now, you can do that. Can you do that for all 30 students in a modern classroom all in one year. No. Can you do that for 16 kids like we have at Veritas in a, in a modern class year, a classroom in one year? Probably not. Probably not. Um, but is each and every single one of those students at some point going to have a realization, oh, I like learning stuff? Yes. For some, unfortunately, it may hit them when they're 40 because then they've gone through an experience of like, hard learning, like learning that the hard way. For some, 
the bug got them when they were in ninth grade Hindenburg English class or 10th grade Donaldson English class. Or chemistry. Or chemistry or, or Geisinger's chemistry class. Or, when or they any, realized they could blow stuff up you know, with common yeah. household chemicals. And <laughs> yeah, so the, there is just um, um, like what it, there's a reason why it's called the humanities is because it's teaching them to be a human. Right. And so at some point um, you've you've chiseled through the the shell that the modern world sort of places on all of us um, or uh, and and this now sort of the light breaks in and then it means something for them. Um, I think you know the, a lot of the despair, a lot of the the anxiety, or the what Dershowitz is talking about is he's experiencing a lot of students who've never really had that. Right. And so what they were so then all of their ambition, all of their energies is being put into crafting um, lives of of no. Well, Ambition, money, and, and and jobs. I mean, he's at a, he's at Yale. He's at a high functioning uh, institution where people who are going there. Wait, we don't have we don't know what college he's at. Right? He teaches at Yale, Yale. Oh, okay. um, where they have okay. aspirations. Still, I don't think he's. I don't think the mission statements are Yale, but he's no, no. talking about Yale. So the students there all have reasonable expectations that they can be in the halls of power in their lives, uh, whether that's in science or arts or politics or those sorts of things. Like I think. You know, the air and the water and those sorts of institutions um, are victims of their own success. And even when we talk about everyone having a college degree, um, only about a little less than a third of adults, so people over age 25 in the U.S. have a college degree. So even when we're talking about this social problem, it's it's a smaller social problem, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy for us to blow it up because we work because, in education. Yeah, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like all the people I know have college degrees and then probably have these similar personality traits that Dershowitz is getting at. Um, so I agree with that. Like, so we got to check our privilege at the door, oh, I guess. Man. Um, okay, so the, uh, Bing, bingo. Was that the no, check? I don't think check is, is that a number we're going to add to the list? Um, okay, so but I guess in general, do you commercial, cognitive, moral? Are those good? So sorry, I, I come back to it. Um, Dorothy Sayers and her essay on the trivium talked about people getting this kind of broad education up until sixteen, and then at sixteen making that choice between. Um, I'm kind of following the academic track or I'm following the um, the practical track. Um, and it's it's okay to make one choice or the other. Like mm-hmm. there's not um, a moral superiority between one and the other. Um, so I don't know. Do those three strike you as like good uses, good education? Or is there something more? Is there something less? So um, I just, yeah, the moral education one seems harder to do when you are, well, I don't know. But I think that's old Donaldson talking. Yeah. You learned some of your greatest principles about life at college. Yeah. I did. Because mm. one of my biggest lessons about who I wanted to be and how I wanted to exist in the world mm-hmm. happened at college. That's true. And it's, I think it's because that's the point at which we, we are in control of that. Our parents no longer control what we do. They don't have eyes on us every moment of the day. They... We don't face their consequences when we get home. We face our own consequences. And so at that point, you have to take ownership for how you live in the world, and that's when you learn your lessons. I think moral education happens... I mean, ideally, we have some sort of firm foundation that we received in high school and before, but when we act, when you know it actually matters and we're making those choices that will affect the rest of our lives is college. Yeah. Um, do you all have, like, a specific moment where that... Um Grammy just used a phrase for it, and I forgot what it was. It was something spirit. Do you remember what it was? The spirited soul? Spirited soul. Oh, like, do, you yeah. all, do you all remember that moment where that spirited soul was awakened? I do. I, 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 do you have a story? Do you have a, a moment that you can point to? Maybe. Okay. 
I, I can definitely. We want to do roundtable. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, and and it's I may have mentioned it before on the podcast. It was I was in a first year philosophy class, uh, um, and it was talking about Plato, and. It was a philosophy class where you come in, you have a big old lecture, and then you have your small tutorial with 10 or 15 other people. And in that tutorial, as the students were talking, they were using words that I had never used before, heard before, ontology uh, and um, metaphysics, and, and just to talk about Plato. And I was like, whoa, 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 I went to public school too, like mm. you did. Like, how do you know what ontology is? I don't know what ontology is. <laughs> and um, I just remember those lectures the teacher talking about the book and the things that he were describing were so fascinating and so interesting, what is justice, um, that I wanted to... I also thought that the teacher himself was a little bit of a, a pompous boob. Mm. Um, and so I didn't really just want to take everything that he said as true. So I wanted to go to the source and, and understand it for myself. And I so I was reading Plato, and I did not understand it. And I was in tutorials of people who either did understand it or made a great showing of they did understand. And I had felt, I felt incredibly inadequate. And I don't remember, I remember feeling inadequate in public school or if I felt inadequate, I just didn't care. Um, but at this point, like I felt bad at something that I wanted to be good at. So I remember sitting for like four straight hours in the Victoria College library with Plato and a dictionary um, and just willing myself to understand what was being said, reading paragraphs over and over and over and over, writing out the arguments in syllogisms, doing everything I could to understand this thing. And by the end of the trimester or the semester or whatever, I f could sit and I could read Plato and it made sense. And to me, like, that was the willpower yeah. taking over. Like the, co like, the cognitive ability is always there, um, but you just needed to... Um, do it, button seat and actually do it. And that sort of experience, I sort of even credit as like the ship leaving the harbor for the first time mm -hmm. kind of thing. I'm still unclear as to what you mean by awakening of the spirited soul. I think if we're talking about the point at which we wanted to actively pursue education, that's at one point. The point at which I realized that I'm a human person, I have a place in this world, the questions of metaphysics really matter. That was far earlier. So my, hmm. I think if we're talking about my awakening to, like to my existentialism, own, existential yeah, angst. My my existential angst happened really sure. early. When I was a young child, I used to think about like I've always been a Christian, and I I used to think about what eternity was actually like, and I would sit and I would think about eternity, and I would think about riding a bicycle in a circle, and having it never. End. And I would sit and I would think about eternity until I just straight up freaked myself out. Right. And I would feel the weight of this eternity weighing upon me. Like, it is a big idea. And if we realize that as Christians, we are claiming we will never die. You can play piano for 3,000 years and that hasn't affected any percentage of how long you will actually be alive. It is not only mm. minuscule, it is nothing. You will never stop living. That is a big idea. Mm. And I had those existential moments when I was like seven. Yeah. And I... I would come crying and to my mom and talk talk about eternity. And so that's when I sort of realized that I was alive. And then in seventh grade, I had a period of doubting and doubting my faith and doubting everything that was going on around me and wondering if these guys were all idiots singing to a, a nothing in the sky. And so I started reading C.S. Lewis. And then again, when I was reading Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine, mm -hmm. do you guys ever have that? So yeah. he talks about 
what being alive is and how magical it is to just be alive. And as you sit and you strip away all of your worries and all of your vanities and think about what it means to be a person with blood pumping through your veins, sitting at a table, it sort of awakens you to what's going on. And I, I have that experience again, again, mm -hmm. all the time. I still have that experience where I'm like sitting and thinking about all these worries that I have and then all of them fall in importance to what it means to just to just be a living person. Yeah. And a lot of authors write about that. So that that experience I had young, mm -hmm. that life is a complete miracle. Eternity is completely mind-blowing. That we are, our eternal spirits are, are the stakes of the game. Yeah. And it is a, an intense game. The point at which I fell in love with education and wanted to actually pursue all of antiquity was when I started working here and I had to read the Iliad and mm. the Odyssey. And then I realized like, whoa, these books connect to everything. And I started seeing references yeah. all over the place. And then I finally read and understood Shakespeare. And I was like, wow, this guy's a cowboy. Like he doesn't play by anybody's rules. <laughs> Makes up his words. Yeah. And, and I yeah. realized he was, it wasn't some stodgy yeah. thing that he was making up everything and sort of shooting from the hip and he invented half our language and all of that stuff. <laughs> and I started finding the value in all of these old books and seeing old ideas that have shaped the way I function. I just didn't know it. And I could reshape the way that I viewed my soul and the world and my place within it. And all of those things happened far later, yeah. probably only about a decade ago. This is just... Um, the examples, uh, so um, I guess, AJ, I, I kind of I resonate with what you're saying of there kind of being these multiple moments. Um, I remember uh, the first time I came across Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book, um, and that was, I think I had just started business school at that time. And this is around the time when I tried to invent classical education, which we've talked about before. But like, there's just something in that of like, um, there are things that humans should know to be human. And that's I think what you're getting at there, and it's like, I just want, I want everyone to know these things, and I want everyone to care about these questions, uh, to engage in the conversations, to see what wise people before us have said. Um, man, I just want to, like, share that with everyone. Um, and I remember there was that, and my first time coming across Aristotle's Nicom Nicomachean Ethics and seeing that, like, um, all these questions that we're still asking so many thousands of years later have been answered, not, you know. And answered in multiple ways. That's right. That's right. And so, um, but they're like legitimate answers over thousands of years. It's not all of a sudden we've discovered all of these problems in, you know, 2018. Um, there's this common humanity that um, crosses all of these, this classical writing and is attempting to get at these true answers. Um, so I get, so, sorry, the reason I'm asking this is that um, all of our answers occurred in, Graham, maybe yours a little less, but they were self-study. Like mm -hmm. it was, you came across that and wanted to learn it. It wasn't, someone didn't hand to you and say, learn to love these things. But I didn't pick up Dandelion Wine on my own. So who gave that to you? That was a school book. Yeah. And then same with Iliad, you read it because you were here. Because I had a job, because mm -hmm. it was school. Yeah. I, these things were put in front of me yeah. and I I realized because they were material, I digested that they're great worth. Yeah. I mean, I didn't pick, I didn't. I wasn't shamed into learning Plato because I didn't understand it by myself. It was because I was in a group of people who seemed to understand it more, and I wanted to be part of it. And then when I got it, when I understood it, I, I sort of feel like I, when I, um, I never really even, like maybe my motivation was I want to be competent at the table with everybody else. Mm. But then it easily transcended that, too. Right. I don't care if I'm competent at the table. Now I found something that's really interesting on its own, and I want to learn it that's for good. its own thing. Um, I like that phrasing of it better. My my qualm with sorry with um, this whole article is 
I think it is it's putting all of the agency on the university. Mm -hmm. It's it's only the university's fault that students care about commercial cognitive and or only sorry. His argument is that commercial cognitive and moral are purposes of a university, but over time moral has fall, fallen off and in many cases um even cognitive. cognitive has fallen off. Um uh I have a a master's of business administration and there's just just a, drop that in casually. Well, just, <laughs> I'm about to make fun of it, so um the they used to require a thesis to graduate with an MBA, and they no longer do. So it's literally what, um, and you can read all you want to about the high grades. I think Harvard uh, uh, gives uh, three quarters of the grades it gives are A's. Like you just read this funny stuff of like people get really good grades. So um, whatever. That even the cognitive side of it has fallen off. That it's not about learning. It's not about being challenged. It's about getting an A and then getting a the piece of paper. So then the commercial purpose is what remains. Is Dershowitz's argument. And then that's what he's worried about for these Yale students. Um, but I don't think that's fair because it's the, the student still is the person who's making a choice of what to follow and go after. And maybe the university influences that. Maybe there's mm -hmm. um, what Societal is... Societal ills, too. Sure, sure. There's what yeah. is rewarded um, and what they're told. You need to go off and get a good job. Um, there's just something of like the person has a choice of, I don't know, I went to the University of Texas. There was an English requirement as a part of that class. And we read many of the same books that, AJ, you read in your class. Like, a feast was put in front of us, and maybe the teacher didn't teach it as well as you do in your ninth grade class, but that still could have awakened something in us, and it just didn't. Well, I think maybe part of it is the way literature is taught now sure. in, in university. And I'm not indicting everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that when we approach a book academically, the way that we approach it now is we take these grand theories and apply it and make and shove the book into these theories like the feminist theory and the we have gender theory we have all kinds of post -colonial. things post-colonial post-colonial theory we have got like there's we try to shove it into all these paradigms and we dissect it and we talk about what the characters are doing and how the author does what he's doing but mm -hmm. it's you know we murder to dissect it's, it's so it's a sociology masking as english literature well yeah, partially. Masking as like in, as as uh, literary analysis. It's it's a uh, it's like an anthro. Yeah, it's it's a sociological anthropology being superimposed over a book and using the book to tell us something about uh, or or that that can sort of help shore up this um, hermeneutic. Actually, Harold and even literary theory. It's mm -hmm. like taking a tiger and putting it on the di dissecting table and looking at its muscles and looking at its fur and looking at its you know, evolutionary origins and it's different species and th talking about, like, we know everything about tigers, but we've never seen one run, mm -hmm. right? We've never seen a tiger. We, we know what they eat in the wild, but we've never seen it. You, you know the difference? Yeah. Where I can know everything about a tiger, but I've never actually experienced a tiger. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our, our I, kids I feel like here, that's the best analogy. Our I kids here dissect a cat and if you, uh, in biology class, and if you dissect the cat, but no kid would leave the dissection having learned about all the liver and, or, and lungs and brain and all the sorts of things about a cat. Nobody would leave here and say, I know everything about a cat in the same way that they have a cat at home that's their pet that they feed that sits on their chest that and purrs at them. vaguely and, hates them and doesn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so there's, it's, well, it's, it's the two different kinds of, of learning. It's the ratio and intellectus again. Exactly. Coming back to it. Yeah. Um, um, uh, that's the way we approach a lot of topics. Mm -hmm. Harold Bloom has a good uh, way of talking about... Closing of the American mind? Yeah, no, no. Oh. Um, well, uh, uh, Harold... Uh, is it Harold Bloom I'm thinking of? That's, he wrote that book. Did he? Okay, anyway, so he has a good way of talking about um, uh, 
these hermeneutics of interpreting literature that AJ is talking about, all these different sort of schools of thought, post-colonial theory, feminist theory, these he calls them hermeneutics of contempt because they are coming into the literature um, wanting to sort of blame old ways of thinking for modern societal ills. And there's some truth to that. But if that's all that there is, um, that we can't, we can't read and understand Shakespeare apart from his place in human history, is a, taken as a given, is not, but it is not necessarily a given. Mm. Um, I mean, in the classical world, there is, we, there, the, one of the givens of literature in a classical education is that the world is fundamentally understandable and that the human heart of 16th century peasants in Russia is the same human heart as 2018 suburban kids in Austin. It is the same heart as Shakespeare and is the same heart as, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in, in you know, the, you know, like, yeah. So and even, even if you are a, an, an evolutionist, right, if you, if you don't believe that you know, we're created a certain way or that there's a God, you, you have to know that we have only been the way we've been for 2000 years. And that is not enough time to evolve in any direction. <laughs> right. So even if you are, you don't believe in a God, you still have to say that we are the same exact kind of people with the same exact instincts yeah. that we have always been. Yeah. And even if you think like, we've made a lot of progress. Well, we have more slavery today than we have ever had. Yeah. So we can't even necessarily say that. Yeah, so if we go back and say that, oh, well, Shakespeare's only a man who uh, is a product of his times, and his time was old and dumb, and so, <laughs> right? So um, then we don't need, then we don't, then this doesn't have anything to say to us, but dang, do we have a lot to say to it. Yeah. And that, that tends to be a lot of what modern, um, it's like intellectual this sort of hubris. new wave, this new way of interpreting literature is. Um, I was lucky that I kind of happened to dodge that mm. in my undergraduate education. Um, uh, and I had great teachers. Looking at you, Vic Bob, I had great mm. literature teachers. They were, they were awesome. But um, um, anyway, but, but that's definitely a growing problem in humanities classes in modern colleges, definitely in seminary courses in modern seminaries. Um, uh, I'll just start moving it toward landing. Um, this conversation took a totally different turn than I thought it would, which is awesome. Um, uh, we were going to talk more about history of universities, but I don't think that's helpful. Um, I don't know. I've um, AJ leads this great books class for um, parents and teachers at Veritas, and uh, one of our conversations during Great Expectations was um, whether beauty can be taught. And I just, I don't know, this, these reflections on, like, um, experiences with beauty and how that, like, I don't know, attracted our hearts toward education eventually, I think is really helpful, too. So there's something to that. Um, but for what it's worth, I just think it's really interesting that, um, the university, uh, is a creation of the middle ages. Um, you know, so I think we would call the dark age or yeah, dark ages. Uh, I yeah. would not call it that. Some many would, um, that, that, that is where the university comes from. And really like the, the, the growth of universities, um, is tied to the rediscovery of the Greeks and the work of translating those works, uh, into Latin. Um, so I just think that's really interesting that like, I don't know. They also felt that sense of wonder, and that's what spread people who were um, joining with universities. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very different system than what we have today. Um, but yeah, that there's. I want to go back. Do you have the the original mission statement that Harold Bloom? Ha or, sorry, that Dershowitz had about the the institution. Sure. Because that sparked a thought in my mind. So, um, can you read it again? 
The paramount obligation of a college is to develop in its students the ability to think clearly and independently and the ability to live confidently, courageously, and hopefully. So there, I, I worry that the modern relationship that we have with education is a fragile one because of how homogenous it is. Mm. So um, uh, people say you need to have a college degree as if all of those things are sort of equivalents. Um, depends, you know, as, regardless of what you've taken. But if, if everybody is doing the same kind of path, um, um, that puts a society in a very fragile place. Like if everybody's doing the same thing, if there is one unknown that can, um, uh, that, that, that can be deadly to that uh, trajectory, then it can, it can wipe out everything. It's like if you plant one plant, if you plant mm -hmm. one potato plant in your field, um, it may be very efficient and you may be able to maximize the yield, but only under perfect conditions because as soon as you have one blight that targets that potato, you could lose oh. everything. Yeah. Whereas if you had a, um, a farm that is inefficient, but you had tons and tons and tons of different paths that you could grow down or different paths you could walk down, different, different potatoes, different potatoes, yeah. different crops, yeah. you have one blight and it ruins just a little bit, but you have all of this other, all of this other yield, but maybe you're not getting like X amount of food tons as you would in the first one, but you are more resistant, um, resistant, to resilient. Failure. And, um, so there's just something that makes me nervous that when we have one model for human success and that model is, and it's what twelve years. Yeah, make the requirement for being an active participant in, in the modern world, and that is like twelve years of, of of school, and then like a four year uh, college degree, and then after that, um, maybe some sort of master's degree. If that is the only sort of, if that is the ticket to survival in the modern world, my fear is that there's a blight mm. that could affect everybody. It's like when um, if there's a if there's an an inherent flaw in the college system. Mm -hmm. It affects everyone that It'll, ends up ruling and running businesses mm -hmm. and ruling the Congress. And it's, I'm not saying that people who haven't been to college can't do any of no, this, right. but we tend to put people who've been in colleges in positions of power. Yeah. And if they all think the same way and have had the same experience, we homogenize society in such a way that any flaw could wipe us all out. And that's what you're saying. And, and it makes it efficient, right? Like it makes hiring somebody easy because you can say, oh, they went to college. That tells me something about this person. Right. And that's great. As opposed to the difficult thing of having to get to know somebody <laughs> right. to see if they're good for a job. Yep. Um, Are you calling all of us potatoes? That's what I'm kind hearing. Of, yeah. No, but <laughs> I'm clear. saying that like we've, we've wanted to make this, we've wanted to make things efi efficient. And so college is the sort of stamp of approval that society has said, if you have done this, you are a ready worker for the workplace. Um, but if that is the only path that we have, if there is something that comes in and is a blight on that, or, or um, then then we sort of actually created kind of a more fragile society. Then, if um, the path to success um, was a multifaceted one that actually required the genius of the person to figure it out for themselves, as opposed to can you conform to the path that we've said is the only way to do Are it. Are you? Promoting a guild system? Kind of. Yes. Um, no, I'm just promoting um, uh, a, a healthy system. suspicion I'm of the status quo? Yes. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of a contrarian idea or that, um, that it is um, within everybody's best interest to 
realize that it sooner rather than later they need to have gotten themselves out of something that is potentially a fragile system. That, that's all I'm saying. Uh, and this is something that applies to, you know, all sorts of things. Like, there were lots of really interesting articles written about this when it came to mortgages during the mortgage crisis in 2008. Yeah. Um, um, where one flaw in the system. Where one flaw in the system, like, and everybody was playing this game. All right, you take a mortgage. You take this 30-year loan at, you know, $500,000, and everyone's doing it. So if everyone's doing it, it's got to be this sort of safe thing. But then all these loans get packaged and some loans go sour and it sort of was this blight that affected the entire thing and it's taken people 10 years to get out from under it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's there's a fragility to that um, that, uh, and it, that can, you know, affect a human life. Uh, the same kind of fragility where it's like, all right, well, it's the 1970s and you graduate high school and everyone's going to go take a job in a factory. Yeah. Well, that was a fragile system because when the factories changed, whole towns disappeared. Yeah. So, um, um, anyway, this is not, yeah. This but you're going to, um, you're talking about romanticism. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. You are talking about romanticism next, but I was yeah. thinking um, transcendentalist because Emerson has this fun thing where he's like, um, uh, you should preach a sermon and build a bridge and like you should have lots of skills yeah. um, as a way, as, a, as an opposition to um, that Pr- fragility. I think practically in the person's life, you should have multiple revenue streams sure. that you, I think you should be able to have. And what classical education is hoping to do is make people generalists who have lots of different interests in things. You do pottery. The, Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> whereas the modern world is wanting more specialists. Yes. If I can get yes. you to be the perfect yeah. version of this, then I can... Take your per, your perfected specialization and fit you into the our you know corporate structure with this person who has this perfect specialization, so we can be the most efficient juggernaut of a, of a business or whatever. Um, but again, that's a fragile thing because once one part doesn't work, anyway. So can we can we land this yeah, plane? Yeah. Can we summarize what? Your initial goals were for bringing... No, we're so far away from what I planned. Um, <laughs> Sorry. We should add to the bingo card whenever uh, Graham references a Nassim Taleb idea because you've successfully done <laughs> yes, uh, Skin Anti- in the Game so, yeah, and go, Anti-Fragile. Yeah, go yeah. read Skin in the Game. Yeah, go read great. Anti-Fragile. Um, uh, we can land it, but there. Um, uh, this is just a thing I wanted to throw out just so that it's included. So 50 years ago, what was the most common major? This is our quiz show. Have fun. Agriculture. Um, oh, gosh. Or maybe I don't mechanical? Know. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say engineering. Ed- education. Education. Oh. And then huh. um, this is as of uh, 2011, 2012. So this is old. Sorry. What was the most common major? Communications. It's up there, but it's not. Business? Oh, it's business. Oh, it's business. Yeah, business. Yep, it's business. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't call a business major a, a specialist. That's my one thing. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair. That's a fair point. Yeah. Whenever I hear you say I have an MBA, I just keep thinking mba, and then I oh. keep thinking of the Hanson song. Mba, 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 mba. And then you've got. I always mba. hear NBA, and then I imagine Usually a bunch of dudes in suits with briefcases playing basketball, <laughs> trying to throw them into a basketball hoop. Yep, that's <laughs> all we did. How did you know? Um, so yeah, um, I guess the the point that we eventually got to was. Um, I think not depending on the institution so much itself. I think that's an important idea. Um, Graham, what you were just talking about of um, having interests and developing those interests and following those interests. Um, uh, the Veritas Academy, where we all work, is a university model school, which means that we have this, um, it's like a college schedule where you'll have you know an hour and a half of class and then an off period and then you know more class. And so um, for the students to use that time well, not just um, 
I don't know, don't go play video games with all of that time. But And they're not it. supposed to. That's against Sorry. the rules, by yeah. the way. Um, but Any parents who are listening. Yeah, yes, yes. But um, you can still want to be playing video games during that time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, choose to, t- choose to use that time well of learning a skill, um, playing music. Um, uh, d- I don't know. Having a worthwhile discussion. Yeah, having conversation, which is so what classical education is about. Um, yeah, I guess that's where I would land it there. All right, um, I will... Draws to a close. Do we have any? We don't have any classical stuff we got wrong, do we? No, no but you have, a, you have a quote, right? Yeah, so we, I want to bring back the commonplace practice. This quote is from John Fowles' The Magus from his character Nicholas Earth, who is kind of a loathsome hmm. dolt. Like he's intelligent, but he's not that intelligent. He, I mean, he's, he's not going to create anything new. Hmm. He considers himself, he's your standard college junior who thinks he knows everything about the world and considers himself pretty fantastic at everything and every everything else is not worthwhile. So he says about himself at that time, I got a third class degree and a first class illusion that I was a poet, <laughs> but so nothing good. could have been less poetic than my seeing through all boredom with life in general and with making a living in particular. I was too green to know that all cynicism masks a failure to cope, hmm. an impotence, in short, and that to despise all effort is the greatest effort of all. Hmm. It's a very well-written book. I loathe but respect the ending. Like, it's the ending that fits the book, but I kind of hate it. Hmm. I don't want to give you any more spoilers. It's odd, and it's, you know, it's got some pretty scandalous things in there, but it's it's a good book. What's the name of the book? John Fowles' The Magus. Cool. Or Magus, or however you pronounce that. Got it. And all right, well, thank you for listening. You can check us out online at classicalstuff.net. You can follow our Twitter at classicalstuff. C L S S C A L. Yep. Stuff. Stuff at Twitter. <laughs> I don't understand the Twitter machine. So you can check us out on Twitter. We have some fun things coming up in the summer. We are considering no. starting. Yeah, you gonna say this? Yeah, wow. I want to promote it. This it's makes gonna it real. happen. Wow, we're gonna we're gonna maybe do some Twitch streams no, where we three play video games. So if you're one of our students, uh, we're still trying to convince Graham on this one. He's kind of <laughs> He's against not the idea. Yeah, but. We'd love to do it and have the classical dudes playing some new modern video games just for fun. Uh, <laughs> Only if we play Civ, like, Civ You can't six. say Ooh. no to the idea Ooh. and then say Draw yes game. and stipulate one specific that, video game. But is that the perfect I'm game? That's classical. That's the perfect game okay. for us to play? Yeah, yeah I'd be okay Except with I always stop the game after the Middle Ages. Cause, well, because <laughs> <laughs> that's when it peaks, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, when, that's when things were good. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, so we might that might be coming up. We got a few other things in the pipeline. Uh, we love doing this. We love that you guys are listening. We, you know, we we are still flattered that anyone actually even listens to this podcast. We love doing it. We love talking about classical things and engaging education. I'm sorry we talk about literature so much. It's just the kind of things that we love. We will get Don't some. Don't apologize for that. More. Why would you apologize for? It? Well, we got we got to spread it out. We got to do okay. more science and music and geometry and math and that sort of thing and architecture. We promised that early. We just haven't. I guess we haven't gotten to the bottom of the books yet. Yes. So we're working on it. But we're getting close, we're getting right? Yeah, yeah, we're we getting close. Getting we have almost all exhausted the all the books. Yep. So it's coming soon, <laughs> the end of books. Anyway, this Probably. is AJ, Graham, and Bees signing off. Ciao. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.